Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. You can find that on page 807 in the Bible at your pew. My name is Jennifer Church, and I'm a member here at MPC, and my family and I have been here since 2002. So let us turn our hearts and our minds to God's word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Bill. I'm one of the pastors here. It is a delight to worship together in Advent one more time as we look forward to Christmas Eve tomorrow, as we look forward to Christmas Day the next day. As we come to the Word, let's first pray. Would you pray with me? God, Father, we come to you having been able to meet with you in worship and praising you for that. And now getting to meet with you and studying your word together, and we pray you'd be with us in that. Our minds can be easily distracted, our hearts can easily run after other things. So bring us by your spirit to this word together in a way that we would be touched and be changed by you speaking to us in it. Would you do that, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you likely know, the holidays, which are a time of great joy, are for many a person actually something that feels much more like a curse. Because amidst all the celebration and the fun and the joy, it is so easy to be just immensely aware of the fact that you're alone. Whether it's loved ones who are lost, whether it is things that you regret that have happened or not happened in the year, Whether it is the feeling of abandonment, it is so easy in the holidays, depression spikes, loneliness steps in, and suddenly sadness just reigns instead of joy. Has that been your story this month, being lost and and sad and hurt and alone in the midst of the crowd? Well, it might be why you're here this morning. I'll try going to church. I'll see if that'll help. You know, even if you're not feeling sort of a holiday depression, you can understand this, you can feel this, because we all have times where we feel lonely. 
Loneliness is a subjective feeling, so even in the midst of a lot of social connection, you can still feel the loneliness. And, you know, paradoxically, in fact, one of the worst ways to feel lonely is to be anonymous amidst a very huge crowd. New York City is one of the statistically loneliest places on the earth, all 11 million people of it. Nor is it just the big cities, of course. With the internet, we have Facebook, we have Snapchat, we have 19 apps that I've never even heard of yet that will let you connect to a lot of people, but then all the sociologists tell us we're more isolated than ever. Because somehow we can now connect with our high school friend from the football team, but we have no connection with the people across the hall. Maybe the worst is to be in a relationship yet still lonely. Lonely in marriage, lonely in family, off, you know, the woman who's away at college but then has roommates but really isn't connected or known. The man or the woman who's home alone raising kids. The truth is we all feel at some point in some way a lot of loneliness. And the fact is, in the end, we want somebody to come to be with us. Matthew 1, our text this morning, says that in Jesus we have exactly that. That we, in the end, want someone to come be with us. And in Jesus we have exactly that. We'll look at it in three pieces this morning. We're going to look at a promise, we're going to look at a baby, we're going to look at a hope. Promise, baby, hope. Let's start with the promise. Way back in 734 BC, the king of the nation of Judah, a man by the name of Ahaz, was in a terrible predicament. His nation had been invaded by a coalition that consisted of the nation of Israel up to its north, and then all the other nations that today would comprise modern-day Lebanon and Syria. So if you put that whole thing together, in other words, he was fighting a force about 40 times stronger than what he had. In fact, this coalition had invaded. They had taken over most of his land. They had put the capital city, Jerusalem, under siege. And he was diplomatically, politically, and militarily isolated. He was alone. They wanted to take over Judah, annex it, kill the current king, Ahaz, and put a puppet king on the throne. So this man was not only alone, he was surrounded by an army whose whole purpose was to take his head off his shoulders. And in that situation, God sent the prophet Isaiah, it's in Isaiah chapter 7, to go to King Ahaz and say, I know this looks terrible, but I promise you, I will be with you. The prophet went to him and said, I know it looks like you have no hope and you're alone, but trust God and God will deliver you. He will protect you. He will save you. He will be your deliverance. But do not trust in anything else. Only trust in God himself. Now, Isaiah at this point was probably engaged to be married. And so there was a young girl that he was engaged to. She was a virgin. And so he said, look, I'm going to get married And by the time we get married, get pregnant, have a child, and that child grows up to adulthood, which for them would have been maybe a teenager, all of these nations that are threatening you, God will have wiped them out. He said, this will be a sign for you that you can trust God is really going to be with you. And so we will name this child Emmanuel, which means God with us. Because in the midst of this terrible, awful national time, where it looks like there is no hope God actually gives us hope. He is here. He is with us. He will deliver us. Now, remember, the prophet had told Ahaz, 
but you need to trust in God, not anyone else. Ahaz had a better plan. Somehow trusting in the invisible God of Isaiah was just a little too much. So Ahaz knew that up on the far north and east, on the other side of this huge coalition that was attacking him, was a mighty nation called Assyria. And he sent to the king of Assyria, 2 Kings 16 tells us he did this, and said, please come save me from this force that's attacking me. Ahaz trusted in the cold, hard steel of an Assyrian army more than he trusted in the invisible God of Isaiah. Now, before we get too hard on him, how well does the invisible hold you? In this situation, Ahaz figured that it was a better bet to rely on the favor of a human king with a big old army than it was to rely on the promise of God through the prophet in his word. The sad end of the story is this. The king of Assyria did answer Ahaz's call. He did come and he did destroy all those nations who were attacking Ahaz, but he also put Ahaz himself under his own rule. He conquered Ahaz too, and he reduced him to a servant. Then, 20 years later, Judah rebelled. And the successor to the king of Assyria came and decimated almost the entire nation. The person Ahaz went to when he was alone, the thing that he thought would save him from his isolation ended up becoming the thing that would rule him and eventually even destroy him. And you realize, of course, this is our story too, right? We feel alone and we run to things that we think will bless us and help us and protect us and keep us when we're in the middle of that loneliness. But those things end up ruling us. They end up hurting us, maybe even destroying us. There's the chemical version. You feel lonely. You feel somehow just not enough and insignificant or a failure or don't know how to quite relate to people. And so the first drink feels like it helps, right? It loosens you up. It seems to save you a little bit. It makes you not care quite as much. But if you stick with that before long, it starts to enslave you. It is so easy for it to become too much and to start to even destroy you. There's a chemical version. There's the relational version. When someone is that person that you run to, whenever you just have that hole in your heart, and you think, oh, I know that every time we do this, it makes a complete mess in life. It's a toxic relationship, yet nonetheless, every time, when it's right down and you're lonely again, you go back. There's also the um, internet version, many an isolated and depressed young single or old single has gone to the internet because for just a moment those pictures or those videos or those places make you think that there's an intimacy there even though you know it's not true. Many a lonely married person has run to the same place or to the chat boards where people say, I'll listen to you, I'll be there for you, I'll feel for you the way a spouse ought to. And it starts to enslave, and it starts to destroy. We run in our loneliness to many places that actually are not good for us. Where do you run? Um, I was in consulting, and after about four years of it, working about 80-hour weeks, I just hit a burnout, took two months off from my firm. For the first month, I flew to California with only a rental car reservation and a ticket back a month later. And I woke up every morning, and I followed my nose. 
I went wherever the whim took me. And by the way, for the guy who's a complete introvert, it was glorious. I loved it. There were days where the only person I spoke to was the checkout clerk at the grocery store or the campground attendant. But I'll also tell you, if you spend a month alone, you learn real quick what you obsess about. Where your mind goes again and again and again and again. So when you're lonely, where do you run? Ahaz, when he was alone, he ran to an Assyrian emperor who ended up enslaving him and then destroying him. And because of this, Isaiah's vision became a long promise, a long hope. Isaiah had this vision of a time when God's people in the nation of Judah would follow him completely and wholly, when they would live God with us with a trust and a comfort and a blessing that God would deliver them from all trouble and all sin and all danger, that they would be free and living in the goodness of the promise he had for him. And Ahaz, as the leader of the people, said, no, thank you, I think I'll prefer to trust in the visible humanity. It seems like a lot safer bet. And because of that, Isaiah's vision became a long-term yearning, a longing, a hope for the nation of Israel. Because Ahaz invited that Assyrian emperor in who conquered him, and then the Assyrians gave way to the Babylonians. Some number of years after that, the Babylonian Empire gave way to the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire gave way to Alexander the Great and the Greeks. There was a brief Jewish revolt and independence that then gave way to the Roman rule over the whole promised land. And for the Jews' entire national identity, from that point on, they lived under foreign domination. They lived under the fact that their king Ahaz had rejected the offer that God would be with them and deliver them. And so the name Emmanuel became an ironic reminder of what they could have had. They had God with them as an offer, and they said, no, thank you. We prefer the hope of humanity. We prefer putting our trust in things we can see and touch and feel. And so the nation longed and waited for the time when Isaiah's Isaiah's vision could become true. And that brings us to the second thing. It brings us to our text this morning, to a baby. Because 730 years later, at just the right moment, at the fullness of human history, God would bring Isaiah's vision to pass. So it happened this way, as the text we read this morning says, there was another girl engaged to be married. Her name was Mary. And she was a virgin. And she became pregnant, not having yet been together with Joseph, her husband-to-be, nor having been with any other man. And Joseph, of course, was absolutely had to be convinced that she had cheated on him. I mean, you don't get pregnant on your own. And so Joseph had in mind to divorce her quietly. Well, why that? Because in their world, in their time, an engagement was a legal contract and it was binding. And so to end this arrangement, he would have to go through a formal divorce proceeding. In fact, though, because it was binding, the charge against her would actually have been adultery. In their world, Joseph had every right to insist on her death for this. But there was a compassion in this man. There was a kindness in this man who thought by all rights that he had been wronged. And nonetheless, he had in mind to protect her from the public shame, from the public danger, just to quietly take care of this. And there was an amazing belief in this man because one night God sent a messenger to him. God's messengers in the Bible are called angels. So just like he had sent Isaiah the prophet as a messenger, now he sent the angel as a messenger. 
And the angel said, Joseph, don't be scared to take this woman as your wife. Because what's happening here is not what you think. And the next thing must have blown his mind up. He must have woken up the next morning and said, was that really God or did I eat something really weird last night? Because the angel said, she's actually not pregnant because she's ever been with a man. She's pregnant because the power of God has come upon her that in fact there will be born from her Emmanuel, God with us. That God himself is going to be born in a human form in a way that we still have never fully been able to understand that God will make Isaiah's vision come true. It will now not just be God in a metaphorical sense with them to deliver them on the battlefield, but God is going to become incarnate, become mankind, live and walk among us. And Joseph believed. Now, he must have many times questioned himself and said, am I just losing it? But Joseph believed. He married her, but he didn't consummate that marriage until after she'd given birth to Jesus because he looked to the time where the prophet's vision would happen where Emmanuel would become true, but so much bigger, God literally in flesh, incarnate. What we celebrate. But the fullness of the promise of Emmanuel is not just when Jesus is born, God with us incarnate. It actually comes 33 years later at the end of his life. Remember the mistake Ahaz had made. He was offered God with us, and he chose instead Assyrian steel and power. Well, 33 years later, the leaders of the Jews in Jerusalem would do the same thing. They didn't just have a metaphorical God with them on the battlefield. They literally had God in flesh with them. But faced with the threat of the Roman occupation and faced with keeping their jobs and keeping their control, they actually went to Pontius Pilate and said, we have no king but Caesar. He said, well, what about this guy, Jesus, the king of the Jews? They said, crucify him, eliminate him. In the end, they made the same mistake Ahaz did, but if you can believe it, bigger. They rejected God incarnate with him, leaving him hung on the cross, leaving him dead, leaving him descended, buried. And so the song we just sang, look at the lyric. In his final breath, he tore the veil. The temple had this big, thick curtain that symbolized how God in his holiness was walled off from sinful humanity. It was death to go behind that curtain. And then as Jesus died, suddenly that death was removed, the veil was torn top to bottom because God was with men. Jesus in his life and death became with us. God incarnate, Emmanuel, Isaiah's vision come true. Now third, what does that mean? that means we have an amazing hope. The hope of Israel was that God would actually deliver them on the battlefield from foreign oppressors. The hope of the believer in Christ is that so much bigger because our hope is in fact that God with us changes everything. We could say so much, but we'll just point out three fast things. First, notice that that means he has delivered us. Look at verse 22 in our text. For he will save his people from their sins. Now, the whole reason they lived under the Assyrian domination, and then the next one, and then the next one, the next one, all the way to the Roman domination, they understood was because they nationally had not followed God. And so even Joseph might have heard this and thought, oh, he is going to deliver us from the military oppression we live under. But God in Emmanuel had something so much bigger in mind. Because sin does have temporal consequences. When we sin, it usually comes back to bite us. 
But sin has something far bigger than the temporal consequence. It has the eternal consequence. That when we sin, in fact, we are liable not just to being punished in this life, but the Bible tells us, Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. We are liable actually to be cut off from God forever, to live without Him, to be in the situation of knowing that there really was a God. And we were wrong, and we missed it. And that now that chance has passed. The Bible calls that hell. And Jesus became like us, died on the cross, but it doesn't end there. He rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. By conquering death itself, he didn't just become like us in his death, we become like him in his resurrection. It means that he saves us, that our death is not the end of the story. That there is a greater hope for the believer in Christ that someday though we die, we live again. And just as he has ascended into heaven and we wait for him to come back, we can trust that we, when we die, will not descend to hell, but will ascend to be with him. First off, it gives us a hope that he came to save us. Second, you realize this means that when you and I feel alone, he gets it. He really gets it. So Jesus, God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, perfectly in union with God the Father, the one who has every right to always feel God's presence, not only becomes human, but when he hangs on the cross and God the Father turns his face away and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He understands a forsakenness that we can never fully get. But when we have a forsakenness, he fully gets us. I remember a time, it was in my late 20s, where for whatever reason, I just felt like every single person had turned away from me. Now, that was melodrama, by the way. It wasn't true. But at the moment, I felt it. I felt like there's nobody. Um, My mom and dad are here. They will tell you it's not true. But remember, feeling alone and being alone are two entirely different things. And in that moment, I felt it. I said, I mean, even God, honestly, himself, it felt like he'd abandoned me. Bible study was dry, prayer was nothing. It felt like God was dull and uninterested in little me. And I remember more out of obedience than anything, sitting down and praying a somewhat half-hearted prayer and opening my Bible and reading because I knew that's what I ought to do. And then it hit me like a ton of bricks. Jesus looked at me and said, and it wasn't audible, but it might as well have been. He goes, yeah, you feel forsaken. I get it. The father turned his face away. I get it. It means that when we feel that loneliness, when we feel forsaken, he really does know what we mean. He is with us even in that. And that gives us, third, an unbelievable hope. It means when we live the Christian life, we're not in it on our own. It means as we go through the Christian life, God is with us. Now, I hear that. And I go, but, but how do I commune? How do I be with somebody that I can't see and I can't touch and I can't feel? You know, 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Thomas was able to walk over and put his hand in Jesus Christ's healed side where he'd been stabbed with a spear and touch the healed wounds and feel the resurrected Christ and say, my Lord and my God, it's true. But Jesus has ascended into heaven and you and I can't do that. And he's left us, he says, his Holy Spirit to be with us. The theologians call this, you know, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
What does that mean? Well, it means far more than we can say in a single sermon, of course. It means far more than we can say in a world of sermons. But here's what it means immediately. It means when we do prayer and Bible study, it works. It means that when we actually are praying to God, we are not just bouncing words off a corner in the ceiling. It means when we're reading God's Word, we're not simply reading ink on a page. That God steps into that and makes it something so much more. So I'm reading articles all week on loneliness. And by the way, ironically, I recognize the irony of this, I'm sitting in a coffee shop alone reading articles about loneliness. And I'm reading one from The Economist, and it talks about how, I mean, you know this, the social media thing is really complex. People are still trying to tangle it out. But, you know, at some level, it seems to be making us far more lonely. And is that because lonely people find social media, or social media makes lonely people, or both? And how does this relate to mental issues? It's a big research mess. But this article was interesting because it said they're starting to take it apart and realize that different parts of social media have different effects. So FaceTime as an app, or a Skype or a video call app where you really interact back and forth with people you know, has a very different profile and not as much damage, if I can put it that way. It's things where you just read about other people and then either judge them up or judge them down by giving them a like or a dislike, and, and where it's a one-way thing. And you realize what that means. It means you've got to go both ways. Well, that's what prayer and Bible study are. If you only do one of them, you've only got half the equation. With the Holy Spirit in us, we pray and we lift up to God what we think, what we feel. We pour out our hearts. We're communicating with Him. Well, how does He talk back to us? I've never heard a booming voice from heaven. But He talks back to us in His Word. When we read the Bible, it's His means of then speaking through it back to us. And the Holy Spirit in us means it actually works. It's not just dead. It means that we have a hope that we can go through the Christian life and he really will walk with us and in us and work through us. We said at the beginning, being lonely and feeling lonely, they're two different things. We're all going to feel lonely. It's part of the human experience. But the promise in Christ is that no matter how much you feel it, you are not in the end alone. And if that's the case, if he hasn't given up on you, then try not giving up on him. Next time you feel the pit and you feel the loneliness, read your Bible, pray, fellowship, worship. Do the things of the Christian life and see if the Holy Spirit won't be in them. Now, he might not be in them as quickly as you and I want because we want to take two of these and call him in the morning and have everything better, and it doesn't always work that way. But you'll be amazed that he will meet you in your need. He hasn't given up on you. He's with you. So let's not give up on him. Let's pray. God, Father, we all at times despair. We all at times get into those funks and those modes. We all at times forget the truths of the gospel. The guy preaching sure does. Meet us when we actually are not even faithful, when we're not actually even following. Help us feel the truth and the wonder of the resurrection and the trust, therefore, that you are truly with us. Let us behold our Savior in such a way that it will change everything about who we are. Would you do that in us and through us? 
for our good, but far more for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' wonderful and holy name. Amen.